Pierre Lafarge. Welcome to the Thunderdome. Woo! Uh, Great to be here. We're excited, we're excited to have you to have a follow-up conversation after Dervos. Um, we're also excited that Colleen is joining us for her first podcast post-maternity leave. This is going to be I'm fun. I'm back. Let's go. <laughs> we, Let's we, do it. we need you. I think everyone's <laughs> happy. Here I'm here to back. bring you back from the brink. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there was there was explicit feedback during Dervos that we really needed to get Colleen back because James and I were just talking about like weird philosophical stuff every episode <laughs> that was only half relevant. <laughs> cool, cool. Whatever. So um yeah, Pierre Pierre is the CEO of Spark Fund. Um Pierre, do you want to just tell us quickly uh what Spark Fund does? Sure. Spark Fund is a utility services company that helps large energy incumbents to so both clean energy super majors like Constellation, Nextera, Shell, uh, and big utilities like Southern Company, you know, Duke, Excel, um, bring new offers to their customers around DERs. And fundamentally, our mission is to help expand the grid to include distributed energy resources in buildings and to make buildings and the built environment a more productive part of, of a fast-growing and decarbonized grid. Cool, cool. Well, we're definitely going to get into that, but first we have some some fun intro questions. Wait, I, I do just have to give you a shout-out, Pierre, because I feel like when I was starting David Energy, there was very few, you can call them like tech companies or modern companies with like a modern approach, like in the DER space. And it was like, I don't know, there's like Arcadia and like Spark Fund and like maybe one other or something. So, uh, you know, you gave us some, uh, confidence back in like 2018 and 2019 when we started yeah, talking great. to investors and stuff is like, uh, <laughs> yeah, Hey, you can, you know, you can do something in this space. So you too uh, can I've bang been... your head against this particular wall. For... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. For as long as you like, um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I, uh, you know, I've been an admirer from afar and, and really enjoyed the, your, uh, onstage presence at, at, uh, Dervos as well. So, um, yeah, no, absolutely. You too. Yeah, it's great. Excited Fun to chat. To hang out in the, uh, in the uh, vehicle to rave environment with you and Karen. Briefly. <laughs> <It> was <fun. laughs> yeah, that was great. Um, nerd, nerd right. oons. I think that qualified as nerd oons. Nerd oons? <laughs> oons, yeah. What is well, that? Uh, yeah, uns, you know, like the... Like the Euro disco, yeah. Yeah, oons? it was... Not topic. Pierre, I'm with you. I don't I, know why I... James didn't pick up on that. Colleen, that's why Colleen's back. I that's proving value already. This is what we've been missing. <laughs> nice. So, Pierre, uh, fun intro questions. First, what's your favorite dir? Gosh. I think that my personal favorite DR is uh, connected water heaters. There's just a sort of fun simplicity about the idea of taking a hot, weird, like object as a strange way to say that, but, uh, you know, to take a, a little pillar of water and turn it into something that, that could have value to the grid. It's just such a simple everyday kind of, you know, gritty solution. Um, I think it's, I think it reflects the fact that you can make 
something out of what seems like an everyday object. I think that's something that really there's a techie, fun DIY aspect to the DR community at its roots of thinking how do you know how do you make value out of everyday objects? And I think that one reflects that in a certain spirit way. Okay, so I have a hey. I have a follow up question. Sorry, go ahead, Colleen. No, I was just gonna say I love that as someone who like serves big incumbents. I feel like that's also not not the reason you gave, but like the biggest utility, like most economic program are always the hot water heaters. Like mm -hmm. <laughs> for my days in evaluation, we're always like, oh, this makes so much sense. It was like great utility program, hands down. Yep, absolutely. I don't but I don't know if it's like it feels like the one that's been around for a while, but I still don't really believe is real. You know, like when people like <laughs> when people say VVVs and stuff now, it's like they think like electric vehicles and batteries and like no one's thinking about the water heaters. But so I have to ask, like, how good of a dur is it? Like p pitch me on it. I you know, look, this is also just because it's my favorite, it's not the one I know the most about. Um, you know, OGs in the space like Dan Cohn and Solar Holler, right? Start used to like started their careers like mosaic power, all sorts of fun pitches of trying to tie those things together in the US like they do in Canada. I mean, I think they work in the extent that like anything at grid scale, if you can touch it and turn it off or down, it's great because you can turn that down with even less impact to a human's comfort than air, right? Because water changes yeah. thermally faster or slower than air. So I think that in that context, um, it's a good one. I think it's I was recently it's also not something I know a whole lot about, but I thought was cool. There's a new company, I think called Kelvin, that's like taking hot water heater connected uh, controls and using them as pre-chargers for heat pumps in a multifamily context. Mm -hmm. So you can take mm -hmm. that thermal battery concept and like slingshot it into making heat pumps have like a just a much better payback and in a multifamily context like make it pencil well inside commercial real estate like thresholds so i think yeah. it's it's not just the thing itself it's like can you have a greater than the sum of its parts sort of slingshot effect with with heat and heat yeah <laughs> is it like is it like a two-hour resource an eight-hour resource is it like around the clock call 3kw 7kw i'm trying to like size the call option here because that's like how i <laughs> no, it's a good question. I don't know. From you, I like, mean, how would you, how would you like, what capacity are you selling in the market? Yeah, no, no idea. Um, I think that, you know, you could imagine them being like a rolling resource where you can turn them down across a territory and you you're taking a little bit from yeah. each water here. So I think it's more of a mesh network question than a, than a fixed storage asset question. So it's a little bit of a paradigm difference. Um, you know, the whole thing in aggregate becomes, the battery, but uh, I bet this is one of those points in a podcast where there are like a hundred listeners being like, "Oh, I know, I know." Yeah, well, drop it in the, <laughs> drop in the comments, or, or comments or whatever. We we need to price this call option, so let right. let us know the parameters on it. Yeah, this was an engagement hook. This was planned. <laughs> yeah, what's the value of lost hot showers? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, like there's some some analysis out there that's like you know half a percent of a shower the economic transfer value of the utility of 0.05% shower. <laughs> cool. Cool. Um, all right. Got another one for you. When and how were you first derpilled? Well, in some ways, I think I could argue that as someone who spends a lot of time in a theory of change context, helping incumbents, really take us to scale and organize a market that I think is a kind of core societal natural monopoly. 
I, maybe I wasn't dirt pilled. Um, I've never totally bought the idea that this market should be a uh, reassembly of the grid one house at a time. Um, I don't really think it makes a lot of sense for people to knock on the door and say, hey, would you like me to build a smaller, less efficient grid on your house <laughs> for money? <laughs> I'm actually, as a behavioralist, I think broadly, I think, you know, one of the things that's true about climate change is that people, you know, people think about energy very few hours a day, right? And even fewer a year. And I think that fundamentally it's, it's not something that people do or should care that much about. It's something that our society can professionalize and deliver as an infrastructure outcome. Um, that is clean energy and a, and a decarbonized grid. And I think that actually making this a consumer pathway that is high touch behaviorally is actually a mistake and puts consumers in, this, in the crosshairs of this is your fault and your responsibility when in fact it's really a system and infrastructure and societal responsibility. So no, it's not quite the right answer to your dirt pill question, but that's the- So are you dirt pill though? Hmm? Are you? I guess it maybe I'd ask you to define it first. My my, uh, <laughs> what I do believe is that DERs have a heck of a lot of value to the future grid, and that they're better, faster, and stronger as ways to deliver electrons in our society. So yeah, your your pilling is like techno-economic in nature. Yeah, that's um, right. That rather than I count it, I count it. It's that yeah. qualifies for sure. Yeah, yeah. You don't have to be like decentralized or or buffed when it comes to DERs, right? I feel like you can want the distributed energy. Yeah, what did we get? To, Matt Huber, it was like bodega batteries we agreed on. I don't know if he actually endorsed that, but I think I think that was that episode. <laughs> like, it's good to put batteries in places like that, you know, uh, that 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 qualifies. <laughs> nice. Do we have any other intro questions? It's been a little while. No, we're. I mean, we're tight timeline, so I feel like we gotta we gotta jump straight. Let's into get this. into it. Let's get into it. Okay, cool. Let's jump in. So at Dervos, which for those listening was in in November, um, you know, Pierre was on a panel about central planning, um, and it raised the question of whether DERS could potentially flourish to a greater extent and be more useful if approached from a central planning perspective, rather than the uh, sort of decentralized actor um kind of retail price signals type of type of approach which is which is pretty common in this space um and it was kind of interesting because at the same time that panel was also discussing like public power which kind of tends to take a a different angle on that on that question um so you know Pierre was sitting up there with uh you know, uh, a public power employee, a public power evangelist, and then a like big Marxist public power rebuild the TVA, you know, in 2024 terms, sort of, uh, sort of advocate. Um, and there was actually quite a bit of agreement, but there was a quite a bit of contrast as well. Um, and I feel like you know, I was a already... little mean to, I feel like I was a little mean to the Marxist economist. I apologize. Uh, I don't think well, so. No, I, I mean, he definitely held his own as well. I think it was great. Um, and you guys were definitely agreeing on some things too, which was just wild to me. It was pretty fun. Um, you know, we've already talked to Matt Huber, who, who's the person you just referenced on the podcast and learned a lot about of his ideas. So yeah, we wanted to take the chance to kind of dig into yours. Um, and we got some feedback uh, from the audience that 
they'd uh, they'd like to learn more as well. We actually just released that panel on the pod, the recording of that panel. Um, so folks have kind of been trickling in with comments. Um, so if you're so, yeah, if you're I, a five dollar paid sub uh, plug to pay our policy team, you know, but someone <laughs> I won't out him on the pod, but someone who we like as an OG complained to me that at our happy hour drinking free beer that it was paywalled. I was like, dude, like <laughs> I, you know who you are. If you're listening, I was like, you, you, you're not going to give us five bucks a month. You've been coming to these for years. You know, our policy lead, like, I'll drink your beer. How are you, how are you bitching to me right now that this is paywalled? He's like, I was so excited for that public power uh, episode. You guys paywalled it. This is bullshit. I was like, no, you're bullshit. Yeah, come to Dervos. You're that, listeners. You thought you you thought you'd get beer. You get no. (laughs) So, anyways, if you know, chip in five bucks to pay our policy team, and you can hear uh, hear and and Matt go at it firsthand, which is great. The uh, what's the Maggie Thatcher quote? Socialism's great until you run out of other people's money. Um, (laughs) Free beer is great until dirt if can't pay the bills anymore. Um, cool. So, so yeah, uh, (laughs) maybe rather than butcher it, um, Pierre, maybe you want to just introduce the idea, um, kind of like at the highest level, get all of us sort of on a level playing field here, and then we can, we can dig in. Sure. And I want to take like some number of seconds just to zoom back a little bit, because I think it's one of those ideas that really matters how you approach what what kind of conversation or discussion you're having so to me this really starts with the fact that we're going to need to two or three x the size of the u.s electric grid and by all accounts do that a lot faster than we thought we were going to have to do ever before right those forecasts are just increasing enormously quickly and most importantly driven by i think really key societal shit that we want um home you know heat pumps are great evs are a big deal but a huge portion of the coming need for electrons is driven by manufacturing coming back to america and generative ai coming on the scene as a whole new general purpose technology that's going to become, I think, an inextricable part of how we access data and live our lives and drive, you know, corporate productivity and, and access information to solve hard problems, right? So those are like manufacturing and generative AI are two things our society really wants, (laughs) I think is going to want more and more over the coming years. And those things are going to be fueled by and rate limited by the amount of electrons and where we get manufacturing jobs is going to depend on how fast we can grow our grid. And I think that just one encapsulation of not only do we need to double or triple this thing, but do that in a way that unlocks things that we really want economically and socially and technologically is going to shift a lot of this conversation, uh, you know, that's previously been more focused on uh, substituting fossil generation for clean generation, centralized for distributed, right? It's been more of a transformation. Um I think we're really going to enter a new phase uh, in that context. Yeah, and if if I could jump in really quickly, like I always think about this too, how our entire industry kind of like grew up in a zero load growth era, yeah. right? And so like all of our 
all the kind of like tropes we rely on and heuristics and just kind of the talking points were were built in that time. And it's like becoming clear, like as we speak, that that time is over. That's um, right. You know, you look at like, I don't know, like the PJM forecasts and like all the like the FERC filings and stuff. And there's like a big wave of load coming. <laughs> I, and, I call this the sort of like the 20 and 30 year effect where so much of how humans experience the world and understand what they think they know is really backcast in this like 20 or 30 years of recent professional and personal experience. We're basically just patterns built out of that frame. And when you've had a really persistent state of affairs for 20 or 30 years, you get really hard lock-in of like, this is how the world is. And flat yeah. load growth is a really important detail in all of the discussions we've been having about decarbonization and the evolution of the grid and DRs. And that's changed completely, right? Where it's 3X may even be too little. And in that context, you get this opportunity for punctuated equilibrium where you change one critical thing in a, in a bunch of previous conditions and it can reassemble really quickly. Uh, there's always a period of sort of drift of static where everyone knows everything's different, but no one has quite come up with a story of what's going to change and how and where is it going to land? Where is that system going to reassemble? And that's what I think is so exciting about this moment. This conversation is, you know, we we're in that moment of drift and we can actually discuss in real time how it might reassemble and, and where we yeah. land and what might be different and what might so be the same. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of forecasting your perspective a little bit, so I hope I don't get it wrong or I'm being presumptuous, but I like I like your use of punctuated equilibrium. And yet, if I do understand your perspective on the space, you think that like the existing institutions or incumbents will like need to or should spearhead the change. Yeah. Um, and I'd love to know kind of like a two-part question. One is... Um, why do you, why do you think they will, or why do you think they should? Like, I guess whichever yeah, kind of no. both those dimensions you want to speak to it. No, and they're nuancedly they're related questions, obviously, but they are different. And, and first of all, James, yes, that that is, I think, a fair representation. That's not you know we, that's not like the idea, right? But I think that's a that's yeah. another good thing stone to it. Um, here's why I think they will, and why I think they should. Utilities. And I'll use them just as a sort of that does encapsulate different versions of what that is, right? They're obviously different types of, of energy incumbent, but utilities, for lack of a better word, and particularly IOUs, have a certain set of superpowers. They can make decisions over longer periods of time than a lot of private companies can. They can see the grid as a system with a lot of information and informatics that private actors lack, for better or worse. And they also have broadly a superpower of a socialized infrastructure capital model. They can access cheap capital that delivers critical inelastic societal outcomes, i.e. the prevalence and access to electrons at an incredibly low net capital cost. If you said to someone, hey, start a company and go put $100 billion into a complex weather exposed, maintenance heavy energy system and go ask Wall Street for that and give them a 3.6% net dividend, <laughs> they would just be, it's just impossible. So our society invented this concept, this machine that then turned into a bunch of companies that was really about a judgment normatively that said, look, we, we believe electrons can and should be 
a low cost, reliable, open access, low interconnect cost precursor to economic activity and development, full stop. And the way we're going to do that is treat it as a natural monopoly with a franchise license, regulated profit, and some democratic accountability. Are those systems perfect? Obviously not, um, particularly after 20 or 30 years of a brain drain and no load growth. But they're also, I would argue, in better shape as a balance between private capital and public regulation and accountability than, say, Congress <laughs> or a lot of federal agencies. Um, so lots of our public institutions that are the legacy of the last 100 years of our journey as a country are in rough shape. I would actually argue that regulated monopoly electric utilities are in relatively good shape and have some of the superpowers and flexibility to do central planning, to see it as a system, and to leverage that low-cost capital and actually take a clean energy future to scale faster than any other actor. I feel like that's a hot take, which I I, I like. You're you're bullish on like the, you know they're always getting poo pooed, but you're like no, no no these they're holding up well currently, which is not yeah. what you normally hear from people. Yeah, and uh, yeah, know, I I obviously deeply understand why, and I work inside and sell to and work outside utilities. Right, there are no large companies that are perfect, and doing anything at scale is hard. But what they do is in and of itself hard. They maintain this techno-economic machine at a landscape scale and everyone can connect to it whether it's profitable or not and they have to just do it every second of the day and if they stop doing it we freak out that's a hard yeah. challenge um i don't mean to be overly congratulatory congratulatory of them i'm very aware of some of their problems and they can be slow and intransigent and resistant to change but i think that's what's cool about punctuated equilibrium is if you give them a slightly different set of incentives i think they turn into superpower enabled alignment with a clean energy future and a distributed energy future faster than people realize. And this comes to the idea. My like one simple idea is we should let buildings and the built environment be a natural extension of a centrally planned and capitalized grid. And we should let utilities offer customers a tariff or a program that lets them build assets on customer locations that are partially included in the rate base or fully included in the rate base as grid assets. So the utility can dispatch them, can see them, can engage with them. Um, and they're giving that customer the portion of value that the grid gets, right? They're kind of acknowledging that there's value to the grid of these assets. So I think that's the core of the, of the idea, not just that utilities can lead this charge, but that they should be given that new regulatory authority to, to rate base customer sided assets. So if I can like kind of imagine how this works, you know, simply and practically, um, you know, big IOUX, um, we'll call it uh insole and consolidated. Uh they uh specific they, electric. <laughs> specific electric, I like that. They um they approach, I'm just gonna say 10% of their customers who are at locations on the distribution network, which could use a little something. Um, and they say, and I'm just making this up, but we want to install solar storage, uh, controllers to manage EV chargers, or maybe the chargers themselves, it, thermostats, et cetera, et cetera, um, on your property. Uh, we're going to control those. You're not going to like see the power flowing into your building and reflected in lower bills. We might give you like, a roof lease or something like that. 
um, to make it worth your while, because otherwise, why would you do it? Um, and we're going to rate base this stuff or partially rate base this stuff, as you said, um, and basically build build this stuff out as if it were a substation or uh, another wire or a transformer, um, because it has benefits in the system as such. Um, is that high level kind of like what you see? It is. Yeah, good summary. And utilities, because of their central planning ability and the, broadly speaking, kind of integrated resource planning process, they know where the grid needs those resources most. They know where they would be the most valuable to both the energy value and the capacity value of the grid, where they can solve congestion, where they can have total value. So they know where to put them. They broad, I think eventually with some work, this is not something that every utility knows today, but they could relatively imaginably figure out how much those are worth. And I would also argue that in, in, in a world where you have to two or three X the grid, one of the biggest cost barriers from an affordability standpoint to that quest is the amount of money we're going to have to spend to upgrade our transmission and distribution system to get centralized electrons to lots of customers. If you put distributed energy resources in as a critical wedge to growing the grid, you can leapfrog a portion of that and avoid some of, but not all of those costs, right? We're still in for a lot of T&D upgrades for sure. And the affordability challenges is, is, you know, top of mind of so many utilities for a reason. But if you leapfrog and put customer assets on the building, you can have substantial avoided costs that actually can, can make DERs close to or better than grid parity with big utility resources when you take that transmission and distribution cost adjustment into account. What, why would like, they want to do that then? Utilities like what, are, are the like from an incentive, from an incentive yeah. perspective. Two things. Utilities are chartered to provide low cost, reliable electrons to society. That's why we invented them. And that's why we give them a monopoly. Um, they're regulated in how they do that and how much they can earn. And utilities have a political obligation to provide a sufficient amount of electrons to fuel economic growth in a territory. So if manufacturing comes to your state and says to a governor, I can put a bunch of jobs in your state and improve prosperity, but I don't have enough electrons, the utility's job is to, is to, is to fix that and to get the manufacturing for that state's economy. So they have a political incentive and a chartered incentive. Um, Another thing I think people don't talk enough about utilities is that sort of chartered aspect to how they make decisions. And the the second answer is they're economically incented to grow their rate base without breaching affordability and hurting the economy in their state. So within that regulated context, what they most want to do is rate base assets, earn a regulated return, and increase the number of electrons they're going to sell. And this would allow like them me. to rate base lots of lots of customer sided assets while ex while more quickly building out the assets to fuel the electrons they want to sell. So, like put simply, like in today's world where this doesn't happen, for example, if a substation upgraded is needed and it's going to cost, I'm just going to make up a number, fifty million dollars. And then some clever engineer at the utility figures out we can get the same exact outcome with a $40 million substation upgrade. The utility will do the $40 million upgrade because that's what they're required to do. 
assuming it will produce the same outcome. And you're saying basically by that logic, if tossing a bunch of batteries into the customers south of that substation could have the same outcome as well and cost $30 million, uh, well, then they do that too, because that's what our regulators require of them. Is that That's basically what you're saying. It is. And, it, and the numbers might even be better than that. Imagine if you could afford a $40 million substation upgrade for $20 million of solar and storage, and you make their buildings more resilient because electrons are now being produced and stored on that node. So during a storm, you have resilience benefits, you have the distribution. Again, in some ways, I'm just pitching the value of BERs, right? This is where, this yeah. is the dirt build aspect of yeah. this, right? Like a big part of this argument is me explaining to you of all people, uh, you know, why I think DRs are super valuable as grid assets. And I'm just taking a slightly different camera angle, but the grid in that moment has avoided spending 40 million bucks. It's also created space. If there was congestion on that node, um, the reason the substation upgrade was necessary was to send more electrons from a centralized gen through that into the customer. But you've both avoided the upgrade cost and created more space so that you could then send more no more centralized transition. So you, you have get a bunch of follow-on benefits, which have not been well modeled. And that's one of my big focuses right now, working with a bunch of folks to get those numbers yeah. and really try to start doing that math. So even even more like uh sort of simply the 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 meme of like the fat cat uh utility that just wants to jack the rate base is super overdone and uh like an oversimplification as to be meaningless because if you really look at like the when you talk about the chartered incentive or the political incentive or even the actual long-term financial incentive of overall load growth like the, the longer term business performance is aligned with like a, a, a affordable rate base. So um, I think that's an, an interesting take. I haven't, I haven't heard said as, as well as, as you've stated it. And I think there's also like the component of the fast with this particular tension that you can grow your rate, your like overall load and base faster by deploying these assets then you could otherwise build it so you're like potentially you're just like helping your business grow a lot faster by investing in things that you can also rate base so it's kind yeah, of like a double win yeah that's exactly where i was going to go next colleen i think that you know i think of that as time to power and that's actually good for a couple stakeholders it's good for the utility because they can deploy capital faster to some extent, but I actually think that's the least important piece of time to power. The, the bigger problem is, you know, there are manufacturing companies coming to America, right? 500 billion or more new announced manufacturing uh, facilities in these United States, right? I mean, that is a revolution of, of manufacturing coming back to this country. And that's a big deal, right? It's a half a trillion dollars. And those are just the buildings, not the not the salaries, the operating costs, right? That's a big deal. And so when those show up, if they get told by a utility or even three states, right? Let's say three states say, guys, we'd love these jobs. We'd love you to make these cars or these batteries or these solar panels. We can't do it for three years. It slows down economic growth. It puts real human beings... At, uh, with less jobs, less prosperity, and it slows down the clean energy transition if those manufacturing facilities are related to it. So 
electrons are going to be the rate limiter to both a return to an American industrial and manufacturing future and generative AI and data centers. Um, and again, that's not even getting to electric transportation or heat pumps, which we've been talking about for a while. So, so this, yeah, this gets back to an idea we've discussed on this pod uh, first with Emily from Odyssey Energy, who's doing like building mini grids in areas that don't have power. Mm. Um, uh, and then I, I think we discussed this with Matt Huber as well, but the idea of like in your total system economic model, rarely is there an input for what are the positive externalities of power <laughs> development, right? Yes. Um, and and that's that's interesting, yeah. And, and let's pause right there. That is an amazing forgetting, Duncan. We invented utilities so that they would have positive societal externalities. We didn't know that climate change was a thing. We built power networks to fuel electrons so that people could interconnect to them for no cost, pay a reasonable rate, and build businesses have homes, <laughs> stay up late and talk to their kids and read books, right? Like our modern world is built on that precondition. There is an enormous, the, the, the societal externality of, of power is so large in that positive category. It's almost become the fabric of society and the economy itself. And we've forgotten about it. Did everyone else just freeze up or was that just me? Yeah, no, it was, yeah, it, yeah but it, was... it, it, it's fine. Um, I, I still I caught it. Did. I think we all did for a second. Yeah. Um, so Dude, I have a, this. I unless you guys want to pull on that thread further, I mean, I do have a follow-up question that may change gears a little bit, but. Um, there, there's I'm... one. Um, oops. Sorry, my connection was unstable for a second. One quick thing I want to add to Colleen's point, just to really touch on this for listeners is I want to be precise about the mechanism of why DR is faster, why customer-sided resources would be faster. And this is probably obvious to everyone, but I think it's worth saying. And it's really simple. You can build a thousand one megawatt systems way faster than you can build a one gigawatt utility scale resource in this country. Yeah. Interesting. That also is a really yeah, spicy permitting. Cake. <laughs> yeah. right. per permitting permitting nimbyism um you know all sorts of layers of federal state regional and local uh intervention organizing that much capital doing environmental impact statements the whole chain of events that takes a gigawatt and you need to find the land a gigawatt of utility scale takes years you could theoretically if you had new regulated power to plan and site and capitalize a thousand one megawatt solar and storage systems. You could do that in nine months if you started from a good position uh, with enough of a value chain. And that also gets me to the most important point for, for DR industry is this would turn utilities into the largest wholesale customer <laughs> in DR history, right? They would be issuing RFPs 50, 100 megawatts at a time. And our industry is limited most by our cost of customer acquisition when NEM 3.0 happens, not NEM 2, right? It gets harder to sell. Um, selling this stuff one door knock at a time ain't going particularly well. <laughs> it takes a long time and it costs a lot. Wait, so that that introduces, I guess, like a, a wrinkle to the idea that not everyone might have realized. So you're not necessarily imagining the utilities building it themselves. 
they're they're going to cite it and run the studies, figure out the value, pay the customers their land lease or whatever it is. But then you're imagining they on the other side of that are basically procuring these systems from from all the folks who know how to do the sort of like nitty gritty design engineering and you know procurement and you know uh, installation. Absolutely, utilities get to plan site and specify and then capitalize using the lowest cost socialized infrastructure capital model out there which is the utility rate base and then they organize a private competitive value chain of der specialists underneath to design engineer procure construction manage <laughs> and implement this stuff and that will be the largest influx of available market <laughs> for the dr industry uh with low sales cost high predictability and stable margins. And the DR industry today is most challenged by long sales cycles, high CAC, high customer acquisition cost, and unstable margins with an inefficient value chain because we can't predict it. We can't predict our volume well enough to really optimize the value chain. And that, that inefficiency isn't just bad for the DR companies. It's bad for the climate and it's bad for the energy transition because it makes the cost of the energy transition higher because a bunch of small companies with high cost of acquisition are bludgeoning this transition uh, and it's expensive and slow. Mm. So be before I ask my antagonistic follow-up question, I'll actually just tee it up a bit on uh, a, a nicer question, which is just, is do you have like an example of a successful version of this that exists today around the, the country? And like one... That comes to mind because it's probably the most like been on over green tech media like back in the day five years ago even is like the green mountain power kind of power wall program for for vermonters like is that like the right sort of idea of like what this could look like or are, do you have like favorites around the country that are um you know just like great uh indicators of the potential of of a regime like this yeah, that's one of them. Green Mountain Power is a great example, right? And particularly their latest iteration of, you know, putting batteries in 250,000 buildings. I mean, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Those are grid assets. They're grid valued. And, and customers are, the cost of those assets is subsidized by that grid value for the benefit of the grid uh, managing its energy and capacity value. A couple of other great examples, uh, Georgia Power has a 250 megawatt pilot authority that can value formally the avoided cost impact of decentralized generation. They cite it on a customer uh, and then value 20 years of that impact can help pay for a bunch of that DER. Entergy's power through program is doing this every day, citing microgrids and resilience assets um, for the benefit of customers and the grid. San Diego Gas and Electric in a program we help implement uh, is doing this with um, last mile communities in, in PSPS events when they have to turn off the grid, providing generators, solar uh, and batteries and VPP controllers to help make their grid more resilient to those those events and, and prevent wildfires. And I talk about a great emission story, right? You prevent one wildfire, and you've, you've you know, avoided more emissions than almost any other intervention from a climate perspective. So um, not only that, and you're keeping people safe in their homes and businesses. So I think there are a bunch of examples of this. There, there, are, there are several others. Um, Excel is doing work on this. Duke's doing work on this. There's a, there's a whole range of, of uh, of things starting, but it's early, right? And they're all, each of those is an example that's not quite the whole idea. It's a piece of it. And I think what's going to happen is regulators are going to start to realize that making buildings part of the grid 
is a critical next step to the energy transition. Yeah. They're going to give them that new authority, starting with gigawatts at a time. That's going to make utilities a big enough wholesale customer for the DR industry to really take notice. And that's where you get a positive cycle of value where regulators are winning, the climate's winning, customers are getting value, and the DR industry is is uh, coming along for the ride. Um, and just wait, just to just to clarify something you said, um, you said given that authority. So, like, say in the Green Mountain Power example, were they previously like banned from doing that or something? It's a good question. I, I'm not that familiar with Green Mountain Power's regulatory environment. It's actually something that I want to look into more. Is how that regulated change happened. Um, so, I wish I had a better answer to that. But in most, I guess I just cases, mean generally, though. Yeah. Yeah, in general. What I mean by that is a PUC or PSC has to grant the utility authority to plan, site, specify, and capitalize customer-cited assets. And in many cases, they lack that authority or don't have the institutional capabilities to do that from a planning standpoint or a, a management. Like They lack Durham systems, for example, because this is easier said than done from a utility's perspective. They really do need to develop new institutional capabilities to, to do this yeah. and do it well. Um, I would note, though, that one other really interesting political example of this, uh, James, your question is, um, you know, even in a state like Massachusetts, where a big part of that utility regulatory framework is that utilities cannot own <laughs> distributed assets or any generating assets, right, like New Jersey um, and Massachusetts, the Massachusetts PSC just made an exception specifically for solar and storage, saying that the utility can own customer-sided solar and storage assets if they have benefit to the grid. And we'll see where that goes. But that was a really interesting thing to see, which is like, you know, it's, it's not a small detail to change in your regulatory yeah. environment. Interesting. Okay, so here's my antagonistic question. Can I ask it? Ready. Okay. Uh, I buy your bull... I thought that's right. I buy your bull case. I think you've stated it very well. I think there's a world I see that this is a path that makes sense. What about the bear case? Meaning, what if utilities don't do this? And that can be in all sorts of ways. They don't get that authority from the PSC. Uh, they yep. do, and they're corrupt. They, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, do, and they're incompetent. Whatever, you know, iteration of like. We're trying to two to three X and the utility is not upholding its promise in the way that you've described it. Like what recourse do we, the public have, like what happens in that failure case? Like, should we be able to just say, you know, maybe, and this is my perspective coming through is like, I'm going to build private wires. I'm going to build uh, batteries, wherever the fuck I want. I don't need your permission. So that like, that's the, um, you know, uh, you know, maybe the other pole of this, but I'd, I'd love to just like hear your perspective on like, what, what if they don't, what do we do then? So it's a good question. First of all, I don't think in any scenario does it become impossible to sell private power systems, right? That's an unimaginable shift to me. Yeah. So the private market for, Microgrid, solar, DRs broadly is going to continue apace. And any customer who wants to take that pathway can and will. The 
reality is that utilities have a, a kind of structural advantage in that there are a lot of them and there are a lot of different PUCs and PSCs. So there's a little bit of a laboratory of democracy effect. So if it failed everywhere, then they'd all stop, but more likely it would fail in some places for some reasons and regulatory and institutional systems would slowly adapt and there would just be waste along the way. But the utility ecosystem for regulation and activity is actually pretty well connected and pretty self-healing in that way. It is a pretty good laboratory for regionally tailored democracy. And I think that that localism and that subsidiarity is actually one of the reasons the utility monopoly system is in relatively better shape compared to big centralized federal systems yeah. um, for reasons that many Americans intuitively <laughs> feel and believe. But the, um, you know, in, in a fail case, to answer your question more directly, I think you would see two things. One, uh, regulatory authority being removed in, in, in experiments or early programs over a two or three year kind of testing arc. Two, you would see more capital than I think prioritizing private attempts, but I would note that they'll provide that capital at a higher cost <laughs> on a return basis. Um, and we have to wait for the customer acquisition time and the adoption of customers. And again, customers have to make a really strange choice, which is to take new financial accountability for their energy systems when previously they could access that largely through the grid. Um, and I think that just takes longer and climate change isn't, uh, isn't good at waiting. So, so that, there was an important distinction in there. So when you say be given the authority, you're not saying extend the franchise. Um, so like in, no. in your world, um, the utility led DERS model would essentially compete with the private model. Um, a customer could consider the proposal from the utility, which is like, Hey, we're going to put this stuff on your building and give you a lease payment or something or whatever. Um, and they'd consider some other company's proposal. That's like, Hey, here's your PPA rate. Um, or whatever right. it may be. Okay, that's interesting. But, I, but I that, wasn't thinking of it that that's way. That's a little different than, you know, a perspective that I always put out there as like a, you know, a, something to chew on is just, you're saying individuals can install like essentially on their properties. You're not saying that uh, a private company could put the franchise under threat. So it's like that each individual location or meter essentially could install uh, DERS, but the franchise would has to maintain itself. The existing franchise. I mean, franchise. I guess it depends yeah. on the what you mean by the franchise. franchise. Yeah. You mean yeah, like the wire? I mean, certainly. Oh, sorry, God. Yeah, the, exclu the exclusive right to build in that, you know, distribution infrastructure in that in that territory. Yes, the, the current franchise of op being a grid operator would, would right. stay, but you would not get any new monopoly extension of being the only person who could build energy systems in buildings. We're not going to go back to some sort of right. AT and T Ma Bell dystopia where it's like these are utility lights. Yeah, uh, you're <laughs> yeah. you're basically saying like your uh, private property still exists. However, connecting disparate private properties in a, you know whatever way you see fit, it is not. That's like you still you're like that line cannot be crossed. Basically, if you want to advance the the utility model. Yeah. And look, I think that in our broader arc of the last 20 years, in a world where you got a two or three X, the U.S. electric grid, I don't think that's in question. 
I don't think that there's any private company or group of private companies that could credibly say we'll deliver a, a three times <laughs> the size effective transmission distribution and generation system and maintain it at scale. And if they did, they would just be utilities. Um, so I think, uh, so I, I would maybe spit back to you what, what you'd said is that over a long enough time scale, like say a decade or two decades, um, there will be pockets of utilities or regions or territories that, that do fail. Um, and that may mean like reduced economic activity, maybe people move out of that state, whatever. And so yeah. through that uh, sort of democracy that exists, the meme will propagate that the utility-led DER model uh, can work and people will adopt that because they want their regions to succeed. Um, so I think the only, um, you know, uh, but if I were living in one of those territories, I may question as an individual, like uh, maybe we there should be an alternative. Uh, like we're only still relying on that local hegemon essentially. Uh, and so my choices are move or like turn their act around. And, you know, personally, I think there's a third option, but, uh, you know, in that bear case, um, but, you know, I think I've, I've talked about that, uh, enough and, and you're, you're essentially saying like, you can't consider that third option because you need to maintain the franchise. And like, let, that's what like allows that meme to continue to propagate, like yeah, maintain yes, and the institution that... and, and allow it to you know, you have to basically. It, well, I would say that it's maintained the ability to bring a socialized infrastructure capital model to bear at really, really yeah. low net cost. Because when you're talking a trillion dollars at a time, paying 3.6% net versus, <laughs> uh, you know, 15 or 20 is really a really big difference. And, yeah, you know, I think we forget how efficient the machine we invented, the, the societal technology. I see utilities yeah. as societal technology. We invented them at the turn of two centuries ago to deliver this outcome. And, you know, there was a fight, right? Westinghouse and his buddies wanted to build dynamos in the basements of Robber Baron, you know, manufacturing facilities as a barrier to economic competition. Utilities, right? Edison and Insul wanted to create a monopoly, but socialized open infrastructure platform that anyone could connect to. And then we also made this crazy choice of rural electrification and universal electrification that said, guess what? utility you have to connect to every building in your state no matter what and you can't say no and this obligation to serve and we have had an you know other than the climate externalities and the pollution I mean, obviously there's lots of environmental justice and climate yeah. justice aspects to that arc no question um and utilities have not always been good or kind actors in their pursuit of that societal charter right just to be clear i'm very very aware of that but they they delivered low cost reliable electrons as a precondition yeah. to economic growth and prosperity yeah. a shocking amount of the time for a very very small piece of our incomes right um if on average yeah so you're you're uh you're proving your your um sort of uh steel man's perspective that there is not a condition upon which you would sacrifice that the uh, obligation to serve and franchise uh right uh, to build, uh, in, in, you know, uh, there's not, there's not like a situation that will arise where you would consider that. I mean, obviously absolutes are always tricky, but I would just frame it as we do the, you know, roads and things, right. Are also <laughs> not even monopoly franchises. They're just the government and utilities are actually, I think in a positive way, one step removed in that they have a 
more yeah. local, more regional, more subsidiarity oriented way to respond to local conditions, adapt to, to you know, change. And they get Wall Street's money for really cheap <laughs> to do yeah. societal things that create a lot of value. Yeah, and that's yeah, a really yeah. elegant system. Um, I don't want the government to do it, which is the public power <laughs> debate. Well, I it's would love to get into that too. I mean, I know I've asked a lot of questions, but I'm I'm done poking you now. So <laughs> I appreciate <laughs> that. Folks, yeah. <laughs> I something that I guess I think about here. I mean, maybe I'll start by saying like a world where um you know, utilities procuring, you know, 100 megawatts of solar and storage um, is not one that personally worries me. Like, I think scale microgrids would win a hell of a lot of business, and that's cool. Um, so that, uh, that, I think that too, <laughs> you know, that's, that's exciting. I think we're really good at what we do. Um, and, you know, in the event that the utility program offered to the customer isn't, interesting well then i'll just offer that customer a ppa right you know what i mean like i i'll keep doing what i do you know that's that's cool um i guess the there's there's a couple things i think i worry about in maybe the bull or bear case um but one i think about is i understand why sort of like on the spreadsheet this would be faster and more organized um but I have concerns like at the institutional level about the the readiness to do this. Um, and I don't necessarily mean like they don't have the derm systems or or the or the regulatory authority, but more so just like I think for people to learn new skills and like take new approaches can often take a generation. And like part of the beauty of a decentralized approach is you have like all these different groups at different levels of the learning curve going after the prize. And so you're like continuously optimizing for like those who are most with it. <laughs> right. Um, and I guess the concern I have is if we were to do this and again, as long as like private DERs aren't being banned, I guess I don't really care, but the, the, the case for like why this might take a long time is like, do we basically have to wait for a ton of people to retire? at utilities. Um, and I don't mean that in like an aggressive way or anything, but just cause like a lot of, you know, like if you confine the ability for this to occur, um, within sort of like the personality, um, capability of, you know, say in a given region, 50 people, like that's a real concentration of, <laughs> of, of, I think a concentration risk kind of, of like human capital. Um, I don't know. What do you, what do you think about that? Do you think like the, the distribution engineer who's been doing things a certain way for 20 years will say like, yeah, let's go. I'm going to skill up on this. I'm going to change my preconceived notions. I'm going to like kind of maybe go to like, you know, uh, cognitive therapy to make sure those things like aren't like embedded deeply into my mind and I'm going to like become a new engineer um, that I sort of am joking around there, but you know, do you know what I mean? Like that, this is, this is something I think about. Um, and I think it's like a real benefit of more like distributed systems, right. That you have like too many people working on the problem, <laughs> right. There's no, like, I mean, there's space for 50 to do it and 500 are working on it. So only a 10th will win, you know? Yeah. I, I, first of all, 
you know, think about this a lot too. I work with utilities on these questions every day. And I've, I, you know, one thing that I really do passionately agree about in most categories of, of my life and politics and, you know, broader thinking about this stuff is decentralized systems that are more diverse and more velocity rich and combinatory and chaotic almost always produce better value and aggregate decisions. It's messier, but it's that beautiful chaos that is sort of the market and capitalism itself. And, you know, there's some cost to that too. Creative destruction and equality is not all, it's not all clean and easy, but decentralized local subsidiary systems are almost always better than big centralized structured ones. Um, that's one of my deepest held beliefs. Except when something is a natural monopoly that has an inelastic nature that society needs as a preconditional input to prosperity and justice. And there are very few of those, <laughs> right? Defense is one of them, basic infrastructure like roads and water and electrons and fuel. That's pretty much it, energy broadly. There are probably others you could argue about. There are obviously ones in the gray area, but that's on the list in my mind. And when something's a natural monopoly, decentralized, chaotic systems that have wastage, that also they create efficiency on one sense, which is that the 10% is the best 10% it can be, but inefficiency in that you leave the other 90% behind when you're doing big structural inelastic provisioning of societal value, it's too much waste. Great for picking market winners, great for innovation, really bad for infrastructure tasks. The second... Well, maybe I'll pause there. Let you respond to that before going to utilities specifically. Well, no, no, please, please speak because I think what I was going to say is asking you to get to that point. <laughs> yeah. So utilities. The the funny thing about this idea, having now explored it for you know last year and a half, year or two, is it's actually just doing the grid again with buildings. It's not that different than what they're built to do. Um they plan and capitalize and manage and dispatch gigawatts of assets in a very complex system. And this is different, right? This is lots of small things, a thousand one megawatt things, not one gigawatt thing that there are differences, but they're pretty trivial and they're pretty technical. Um, Durham systems and different types of flow dynamics and stuff like that. There's, there are differences, but they're solvable. The institution is built to respond when society needs something and deliver it at low cost, most reliable total outcome. That's their charter. The thing that we haven't needed before for the last 20 years is to double or triple the fucking grid. Now that we need to do that, the question is what is the fastest, lowest cost, most reliable, cleanest way to do that? And I think that making buildings part of the grid is not the whole solution. There's going to be a lot of utility scale stuff. Don't get me wrong, but uh, this is a big part of it, I think. I think I get that. Call, but... Colleen's on mute. She's trying to say something. Sorry, oh, Don. Sorry. Thanks, James. Yeah, no. <laughs> I was say, okay, so I, have, so I have two thoughts on that. And then, Duncan, I want to hear yours too. But so the first is that I agree there's a lot that's the same. But I think that when you get into that thinking of what you said around germs of in order to build and supply X amount of load, mm -hmm. do we need to 4X the grid or can we 2X the grid and like make it run more efficiently with software? I think that part, totally. very, very different, very 
again, from I was doing like EV charging infrastructure at a utility for a while. And so that was something that like we talked about a lot. And that I would say people could speak very intelligently about, but like how to make that decision and trade off of reliability versus efficiency was like not a solved problem. Um, I, I and then that. I think, again, obviously biased work, like maybe being a utility that's in a large urban area, but I do think that the ability for utilities to bring in new people and specifically to rate base roles related to this, which is like an interesting thing that utilities are like, have been able to figure out how to toy with around some mm -hmm. of these areas. Mm -hmm. Duncan, to your point, I think there is capacity to change that component, like to be able to draw on capital and probably where you can't is where private companies would be able to win out more, right? Like if the utility is not doing well and you have private companies, then like maybe it evens itself out, right? Like the more competitive markets of utilities, private companies go to less and where utilities are failing, private companies go to more. And utilities can hire a lot of those private companies like the software companies, right? Yeah. Derm is not going to be built inside many utilities. It's going to be bought from ABB and GE and Schneider and Autogrid and Swell and a couple other, you know, there's like a list of companies that'll be the Durham's and dispatch providers and they'll be competitive. They'll be innovative. They'll be fighting over each RFP. The, the key to utilities is that they are a blend of central planning, social capital and competitive value chains. They're not a perfect blend, but they're a good enough blend that I think it, it solves for some of that, um, concern so i guess like what i was thinking about more so like let's here's an example um forget about durs entirely um i remember when utility scale wind and solar were kind of like coming up what you would often hear not from all utility managers but many was like oh we could never run a system on five percent inter intermittent energy right you just can't do that um and you know last year ERCOT ran on 40% intermittent energy, right? Yeah, that was it, just wrong. <laughs> that's just, just not the case. Yeah, that's right. And I don't think wrong. it was a product of like malfeasance or something. Like, I don't think the people saying that were like trying to poison the well. I just think they were used to something otherwise, you know, it's just, it's just different. Right. And, and people's brains can kind of ossify over time. Right. Um, and so if you look at that ERCOT example, like, well, what made it such that we got to 40%? Well, because a lot of people just tried shit, <laughs> right? Like, and we got there, right? Um, so I think that's kind of more so what I'm thinking. So like in the example of the uh, the the big distribution center that wants to like double their load because they're converting all their trucks to EVs and need to put a lot of EV chargers in, um, you know, the the most techno-economically efficient way to do that is to install managed charging software at those chargers. And rather than double your utility service, you like 0.5 your utility service, right? This is like mm -hmm. very doable. Um, but everybody who wants to do this runs into trouble trying to do it, right? Because the distribution engineer goes, whoa, 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 what is that, right? Like we, the book says, you know, nameplate capacity is the size of the service, right? And again, I don't think it's because that distribution engineer like, has a problem with DERs like philosophically or, or, or like, yeah, but you know, they're like the max you could pull from the service is this. And if you like 
did that, like, do we actually trust the software, right? And I think we're not even well, wait, wait, wait. So I wouldn't even say, do we trust the software? Because you can even install a breaker that just prevents this from physically happening. But even so, the response you get is, this isn't what the book says, right? And I like actually just today, <laughs> Amazon came out uh, publicly saying, you know, Amazon is the corporation that is most quickly electrifying their fleet, like by like almost like 10x. It's wild. And they said, our number one issue is utility services. Right. Yeah. No one, you know, is willing to give us like the moderate utility service that's managed by church software, et cetera, et cetera. They want to give us the giant one. And it's like creating all these roadblocks. And I'm not saying like this would, you know, I'm not saying this is unsolvable or whatever, but I just present it as an example of like the the sort of like human nature of the problem when you concentrate all that decision making power in in just a few folks. Um, I don't think they're bad or or even incompetent not at all but it's just it's hard to change um so i think yeah. that's more what i'm trying to bring up the the meme hasn't propagated yet man that, that's I, it. <laughs> I recognize i'm now just i'm just fully on pure side here um oh i was I, waiting I, for that yes <laughs> out with it no but Duncan, don't you think like that is already a problem and so if Usually the best way to get a company to change their policy is to incentivize another part of the company to do the thing that requires them to change their policy. Totally. Right. So if like the distributed generation part of a utility is mandated with like go forth and like rate base installing all these things and they start coming up against these issues. Rewrite the book. Like wait, wait, but, they're going to, they're going to go up to their execs to rewrite the book. But isn't it already incentivize like it's in the charter to keep costs low if no. like letting the in the charter to keep costs low is very different than yeah, reaching a right. target and getting rate based those are two and they're two different pathways for change yes it's in the charter to keep costs low but not in every case and the regulator has actually specified a, a boundary set of technical judgments economic constraints of how we've decided to do that this decade or this cycle Right. I guess though, like in my example, like the the rate base is like pretty boring, right? Like we're just talking about like some API calls. Yeah, right? but see, like, but see, this is this. Here's an interesting habit I'll point out. Right, we talk about utilities from the middle out of like, yes, that's a good example. They should do it. It's irrational and silly that they can't find a way to do that, and it's frustrating, right? And it frustrates everyone from Amazon to many people, right? There's no question that that's a wrong-headed example of utilities in real meat space, right? Doing things in the wrong way for a total outcome of value, like for sure. But when you talk about kind of the meme, I like that change, the meme hasn't propagated. If you start from the top and say, a regulator says, we got a 3X the grid, holy crackers, societal scale shit, let's go do that. You've got to make buildings a part of that. You're now required to include and adopt practices, principles, specifications, and requirements for how to do that. It'll just wash right through the utility. Now, it might take three years, might take five years, but I'm talking about on the scale of climate change and manufacturing and generative AI, this is societal scale shit. Like over the next 20 years, yeah. what is the best, fastest, lowest cost, highest probability to deliver three times the electrons? that are as clean and reliable and low cost as possible, that's enough time to move even a utility 
in, in, into that, into that gear. Um, and I would actually argue it happens faster than you, even, even than that scale, as long as you allow them to write based things, because they love doing that. <laughs> I think you've just very well, like very, uh, sort of explained, uh, you know, articulately a common forgotten vector of change in, uh, utilities, which is like the political, like political economy, essentially, there's like a very real underlying reality on which that can, that change can happen. And the yeah. common conversation is simply around the financial incentive that that's Duncan right, which is exposed. very, I've always found very strange. It's a really interesting absence to forget that whole piece of the political economy of a utility. It's just like, there's the, we're going to do this as a society and we're going to tell you to do it and you're going to do it. And that's, it's like, <laughs> that happens all the time in utilities you're saying basically like. <laughs> and, and look, the, 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 one of the, the politics behind that reality, James are very interesting. And, you know, the solar industry broadly won a really interesting political fight saying utilities are big, dumb and slow, and they're for-profit corporations that you should hate because they're monopolies and they're evil. And it's prof profit, 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 corporate, corporate, corporate. And no one said, well, wait, are you a small private equity backed <laughs> for-profit company that has a 30% cost of capital and is accountable to no one but your shareholders? <laughs> like, I like solar companies. I'm a DRCO. <laughs> I own solar companies. I, I think we're a great part of the climate and energy transition and we've brought the cost down despite utilities trying to stop us. That's great. But also utilities are much more than just big for-profit corporations. They're very, very unique socio-normative technology. And it's, yeah, you know, it's time to pick it back up, right? It's time to pick that technology hey. back up and make it work for us as from a climate perspective, from a affordability perspective and a prosperity perspective, right? I that's, think that's I'm the thinking... sort of public power I like, right? It's like yeah. these machines we have to generate prosperity. I think I'm convinced. Like I was I was worried that the the argument is reduced to like uh, you know, it's it's one of the bones I, I pick with just like uh, the nuclear movement is like if only like we change this one thing at the federal level, it's like the dam's gonna break, which I just like don't really by that like oh if only we had the political will you're you're describing like a mechanism that seems a lot more like real and established that like it's not there's it's not this like magic uh wand that we wave and everything gets fixed like you know what i'm getting let's, at like could you could you I maybe speak deeply. to that let's, example yeah let's like, double down on like that a right? real in, mechanic yeah in one irp you could go to a commission and get five gigawatts of authority to put solar and storage on almost every rooftop in a territory you would create tens of thousands of jobs. You'd invest billions of dollars in clean distributed energy, and you'd make the grid cleaner, stronger, faster, <laughs> and more able to accommodate manufacturing jobs, generative AI, electric transportation, home electrification in the state. One In one IRP cycle, a few PUC meetings and testimonies and staff meetings, and a couple short years, you would be in that world. And if you can find a single other solution that could put five gigawatts of solar in a single state in five years or less, I would be very interested, right? Like it's, it's, that's an enormous amount of potentiality for change and acceleration. And again, that would make that utility a wholesale customer of five gigawatts of designed and installed yeah. distributed clean energy. Um, oh yeah. So I'm, I'm getting it. I'm going after at least a gigawatt of that. Yeah. I, I hear you. Right. No, that's, that's exciting. That's exciting. I think I buy yeah. that the political will and like feasibility 
stronger in in this case than in than in the nuclear case. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we've fallen into a habit that's a little bit like there are aspects of the climate movement that are hopelessly sort of overeducated and esoteric, and I'm not really that distant from that, right? I mean, even just like that's sort of our tribe for better or worse. And, you know, we came out of these great schools and by and large, and but it's not, I mean, it's not just that, right? There are a lot of people in this industry that came because they knew how to install things and have real jobs in the real world, right? So there is some diversity of, of thought and background in the DR industry, but we do over-intellectualize things. And I think we've fallen into a little bit of a habit where the solutions to these problems have to always just go forward and say, let's design a new acronym, a new program. Let's do policy innovation. Let's do political movement building. Let's, you know, take over utility with the government and see what happens. Right. That's such a bigger lift and a slower <laughs> pathway. Um, uh, and in that case is insane. Um, <laughs> with just a longer time horizon and a lower probability. And we're fighting physics, folks, right? Climate change is a dragon with teeth and claws and it hurts real people in real places and it makes us less prosperous. And so, you know, that's time time and, and probability of success matters a great deal when you're fighting physics. So like in the EV charging scenario I gave, basically what's what's required for that to have gone better is... I mean, I'm not convinced it's like the rate basing incentive is going to get everyone excited because like what you're rate basing, like a PLC and like, you know, doing some API calls to like some optimizer, like it's really not much money at all um, in that specific case, at least obviously solar and storage is different. Um, Unless you have right. EV charging infrastructure in your rate base, which a lot of utilities do now. Yeah, but but rate basing but, shouldn't be the point wait, of this whole but, idea. We should yeah. only do this if it's better and faster. Yeah, for the grid of course. Side, right? I'm just saying like... But what's required to make it happen in that case then is basically just like a, a governor or a PSC or whatever saying like, 3X the fucking grid. <laughs> like, <laughs> just do it. Do it, guys. In their and this is part of it. Like, change the rules. And like less so performance-based marketing. I mean, uh, not marketing, uh, rate making. Like, right? That's what everyone kind of calls to in the the like utility reformation kind of uh, space, it's, it's, right? Yeah. And you're just and like, only, nope, don't even need that. No way. <laughs> the only thing that performance-based rate making does is raise the cost of utility capital. It weakens their advantage of a socialized infrastructure. Wow. Return. That's it. Well, Wall that's, Street says, that's okay, hot, great. Yeah. That's a hot so take only, right there. It's the only thing it impacts. <laughs> Did it? Did you? I, did you? I would lose call in? Are you now? <laughs> that would be a whole. That would, that would be a whole other podcast. Um, because yeah. I've seen it be be very effective. Um, but no, I mean, I think, yeah, I think it's like utilities will follow things that are mandates, but I wouldn't undersell the value of like specific departments and utilities who are like key people having a thing that is directing them based on like, yes, a mandate, but then, I mean, I think I would say with performance based rate making, like the pot, the carrot over the stick, right? Like if you look at energy efficiency as an example, energy efficiency, where you got penalties for not meeting your targets, utilities generally didn't do very well because like the penalties just weren't that much compared to what they're doing. Energy efficiency where people got incentives and could rate base the efficiency work or like got that performance based largely were very successful right mm -hmm. so there is like a strong showing that 
and that's not because necessarily maybe it's maybe it's not moving the needle on the utility as a whole but suddenly you've empowered a department to go after to be able to hire new people where they couldn't before to be able to bring in outside people who are like excited and want to do things differently they then start like being successful they're getting positive they're helping the utility with their relationship with the PSC because the PSC is happy with them for succeeding in this and that maybe to your point of like it's not just the rate base then helps the rest of the company be like oh this helps us with the PSC so like let's make sure we keep doing this this is good good image right and then that sort of creates a self-fulfilling prophecy of like the power of those newer departments and teams within utilities so I think that Duncan, dynamic some, is very real. Yeah, I agree with that. And, and Duncan, some of your point about the EV moment, right? That a particular example is just work that hasn't been done in that particular utility yet. You need to go and write the part of the book that says how you're going to accommodate a relatively new technology. And should be utilities should utilities be a little faster at doing that? Yeah, I think so. Um, I think they'll get faster and faster, but we're in that. And sometimes that it's it's also, I mean, that, that one is a particularly hard one because like that is also often how building codes are written, mm -hmm. which is actually mm -hmm. then a city problem. That's a great point. That the it's utility not just the utility has to follow. Yeah, that's a so great then you're point, asking right? the utility to like have to go to the city and change their code. New York City actually hasn't like adopted the latest New York State code, which so that's actually an issue in New York City. Um, that, that's a really important point, right? This is layered bureaucracy for permitting and fire and all sorts of things. And, yeah. and, that, and that being said, again, how the utilities involved, like, I'm still not like 100% sure that I'm convinced that this is like the right thing versus the private doing it. But if there's a way to get a utility to have higher stakes in the success of that development, whether that's them developing it or not, I do think you would see a lot of those policy things move a lot faster because there is a little bit more of that like power well, dynamic sense. versus, yeah, versus like, you know, some rogue developers coming and being like, this state code doesn't make sense. Yeah, I mean that's I I love that point. Yeah, it's bigger than utilities. It's like NEC and stuff. Um, I mean, and if we don't fix all that stuff and the utility stuff fast enough, in my situation, what we're going to get is a different thing that just got announced the other day, which is Costco. They're electri electrifying their vehicle fleet, and they ran into so many problems. They're just installing off-grid solar plus storage canopies in the parking lot and charging the cars off those. So this raises a really interesting risk. Um, so going back to my Westinghouse and versus Edison and Insul foundational moment of utility history, right? Do we build dynamos and robber baron basements or do we have the grid be an open, interoperable, socialized infrastructure platform? We're going to make that choice again in the next bunch of years because the biggest, richest corporations are going to build electron private islands to ensure that their business continues to their shareholders specified standards. Data center operators will build their own grid, right? Microsoft's a great example. And I use this dynamic in the week or 10 days following their investment in OpenAI, they created about $550 billion of market cap. And that's just about as much as the whole US electric utility. <laughs> so the idea that any one of the tech companies could become the largest private serving electric utility in the United States perfectly reasonable. They're not going to let electrons stand in the way of data centers and generative AI. But that would in some ways be a tragedy because they're already somewhat unregulated monopolies. They would gain a whole new 
barrier to economic competition and barrier to entry, they would live Westinghouse's wildest fantasies, uh, but but in a in a in a whole new age. Bring in the the oligarchy claims to a whole new level that they just have their own grids, basically. <laughs> um, I mean, why would that be a barrier, though? Right? If it's if it's like less economically efficient to do the private island thing, like wouldn't they just get their lunch eaten by the data center that gets built five years later? Uh, but uh, you know, uses the super cheap, nice utility power. If if it happened in that sequence, sure. But in a world where they kind of permanently that pathway, in a, mm. in a world where I only you know, if if utilities got much weaker or were disassembled or it was only okay. private actors, yeah. So in yeah. an alternate reality, right? Um, they, they only only the people who could build, you know, you're going to build a billion dollar data center. Well, you need a eight hundred million dollar grid because you're going to make so much money on that data center that it's worth it just putting it in. Um, and then you just, again, only the enormous actors can can do that. Yeah, yeah. If there, if there were not the utility option, yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, yep. again, electron, okay, electron so private island are bad. <laughs> that's, a new, that's a new term that we have now, thanks to you, electron private islands. Um, so I know, Peter, we're a little over time. Uh, unless there's anything else, I wanted to to tie a bow on this with maybe a fun uh, question where you have to, I don't know if you guys have dope or nopes, but for a while I've been trying to understand because it was really fascinating watching at uh, Dervos, you and Matt Huber, uh, it was so funny because you like agreed up to like 95% of the way and then you would just take like a hard left turn end up being like, but this like social and socialized infrastructure is run by, by the utility with, you know, franchise rights and not like, uh, you know, that the state or like nationalized or whatever, however you want to put it, uh, it's not public. Um, and on the net, you know, the next, uh, uh, panel, um, Lynn Kiesling, uh, talking about, you know, Hayek and stuff was, uh, and, and maybe more of like a, a viewpoint that I've like let percolate in here a little that like an Eric Goff would have to around no franchise rights, like price signals galore, hyper distributed and decentralized. I've been trying to wrap my head around if, if you had to choose given your stance on things, would you adopt Lynn Kiesling's view of the world or Matt's and how he would feel as well? Oh, it's such a good question. I just I like, you, ha you have to choose. You have to. Oh, <laughs> the, oh Thunderdome right at the end. <laughs> Put a hat on for that one. So you go full socialist or like full libertarian, basically. Oh my God. Played this great mix of both, but I'm going to make you, I'm going to make you choose. Oh, it's a hard choice. Um, and I don't mean this as a, I will answer your question, but I will point out that the amazing thing is that Wall Street's money with a regulator delivers the thing we have now. So the middle is really right. rare and really interesting. Right. No, but that's why it's so interesting is because technically Lynn and Matt, like, you know, historically they're like capitalist versus Marxist, whatever, whatever you want to say, like, um, but I think you're in yeah. a very hard position where it, it's like, uh, you know, it, there's not a clear, I, I think I have my guess, will, will you choose? But uh, I'd, I'd be yeah. keen to hear. The, the answer is the government. Um, yeah, I think you I would, would go with a, Matt. I would, yeah. I would have a, I would go with Matt. I would have a public power centralized utility. The government's capital efficiency is the only thing that's better than the rate base. Um, it would be a tragedy because it would be all taxpayer dollars. The government is less good at its job. It would be more centralized, more bureaucratic, yeah. more political. 
it would not be separately regulated. It would be self-governing, which is the problem with administrative bureaucracy because it perpetuates itself rather than contains itself. A separate regulator containing a private enterprise with a profit motion, mo motive is taking public normative goals and containing private profit motive. And that tension creates balance. Administrative bureaucracies are self-perpetuating and self-expanding ad infinitum. So I think our society would spend more, get less, <laughs> and have that entity become less accountable. But for the same reason that I think uh, roads and bridges work reasonably well as centralized public highway trusts um, with administrative bureaucracies to plan and deliver them, um, the, the sheer scale and benefit when you have a societal job to do that is water, power, <laughs> defense, <laughs> or energy, the, the, the efficiency and power and clarity of centralized planning and, and public capital of one form or another uh, or socialized capital just ends up overwhelming the efficiencies you get from market discovery and price signals and decentralized yeah. creative chaos. And, and the last thing I'll say, the last thing I'll say is roads, bridges, water, energy, and defense are inelastic. If you put a price signal on your own safety, rich people would have more police. You could argue that in certain ways through property tax and other mechanisms we found. Well, you see that, that through history. Yeah. Because right? injustice yeah. exists. But we have to work really hard to get to that unjust outcome, right? Um, you know, fundamentally, price discovery of an inelastic good prioritizes. And this is why I really, really disagree with the kind of just pure price signal view. If, if you're in a world where you have pure price signals, the people who win in that system have more time, more energy, less stress, more money, <laughs> and more education. It becomes an unjust system by attributes of discernment and participation, which is, I think, the worst type of system. People who are poor, who are dispossessed, who are hungry, who don't understand the, the details or can't pay people to understand them for them, get hurt first in those systems. Um, and when that good is inelastic and of great societal value, you're playing a very dangerous game and a very, yeah. a very, I think, condescending one. So just to, for one for one last poke, then I I take it you're a single payer healthcare guy. It's the inevitable next question. I don't know enough about it. I will dodge that. <laughs> wow, I've thought refreshing. about it a lot, and I know they're related questions. <laughs> and I acknowledge the relationship. We, we Get that um, out of here, Doug. We just talk about energy, man. Lazy. <laughs> yeah, it's like bringing in healthcare. Jesus. Yeah. No, it just, no, it just it's felt like lives, you right? could have replaced the words. And so I was curious. Yeah. I won't directly answer your question, Duncan, but I think that one of the things you could say is that people can experience the benefit of energy in a dispassionate way. Energy is lighting the room that all of us are in. It's powering this conversation, this connectivity, but we're not really noticing it. We're noticing each other right? Our intellects, our emotion, our time isn't in energy. You can't benefit from healthcare dispassionately. It's not infrastructure, it's human life. And to try to connect administrative bureaucracy, centralized power, rulemaking, and, and efficient capital into something that personal and that high stakes scares me much more than provisioning electrons for people to then do other things. Um, Interesting. As a, as a categorical <laughs> James, I interrupted you, I think, earlier. No, 
Well, I was just going to on. Uh, yeah, I think that's a very interesting point. So I want Duncan to follow up. I was just going to say maybe, maybe like you, me, uh, Matt and Lynn could all uh, get down with like some form of, I want to say like Swiss Canton, like much more fragmented, but it's like, uh, you know, like top down's fine, but if it's local, <laughs> like, <Amen>. it's like <laughs> I don't know. The big, the big top-down stuff, uh, I think, scares you and I both. So, uh, yeah, uh, we we can have a we can have a whole nother podcast on how the like I think our, the politics of our generation will be about localism, subsidiarity, yeah, yeah, pushing yeah. choice further down everywhere we can. Yeah. Um, and, and again, I often feel crazy advocating for. I mean, the last like this whole conversation is deeply misaligned with my deepest political and personal and philosophical instincts. I want to be clear about that, right? At least I came to this genuinely through like experience and first principles. This is not <laughs> what I, I did not set out to be on a podcast advocating for an expansion of a socialized monopoly franchise. There are just, there's a short list. There's a short list of stuff that if it's truly an inelastic natural monopoly, you should do more of it centralized. And then everything else should be as local creative and, uh, and subsidiary as possible. And we got we got to make sure Matt listens to this one. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to do it to you. I picked I picked Matt. <laughs> awesome, Pierre. It, it seemed like there was one last thing you maybe wanted to say. You held up your oh, hand. That was there that for was a second. It. That was it. Okay. Cool. Well, I think I think we've done a good job here. Any final words, James or Colleen? Oh, I feel like that was a great spot to end. But yeah, I loved it. Well, I will First say pod, I learned... I, they, I'm really appreciating. You're, back you're back happy to be back. Start. I'm happy to be back. <laughs> such I'll a say good I... ending question, James. That was such a good question. I love that. That's really, that was legitimately a brilliant question. I give you points. Well, th thank you. I appreciate it. But it was, <laughs> a, it was a great answer as well. So I, I look forward to, uh, you I know, the government. we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll go I'm get a beer. I'm going to wake up screaming tonight and be like, ah. <laughs> the, re the rest of this conversation happens, you know, at the next uh, vehicle to rave. So, uh, yes, nerdoons. Cool, cool. Well, and I learned a new phrase I really enjoy, which is uh, holy crackers. That's a good one. <laughs> holy I'm, crackers. Yeah, I'm going to use that more. That's what I love about being in Alabama, right? You slowly start to swear less. People are like, good night. <laughs> 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 well, I can spend some time in Alabama then. Learning yeah, I was like, I need that for my for my talking in front of my children. Um <laughs> totally. They're great at it. It's something I really I realize that I do a lot though. I, I swear a lot. My wife and I both swear a lot. And we're like, we go out with to dinner with people and they'll be like, gosh, good night. And we're just we're just like, <laughs> they're like oh. it's awesome. <laughs> All right, guys. Cool. All well, right. this 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 was this was awesome. Yeah, we'll have to have a follow up uh, somehow. Like maybe get Pierre, Matt, and Lynn in a room together and see what happens. Oh, that'll be fun. That'll that. be awesome. All right. All right. All right. Thanks, see you guys. Bye. See ya. See ya.